There's lots of stuff going on in the readings today, and I sort of really felt that I needed to talk about the wedding at Cana, so that's what we're going to do. The book of John is highly symbolic. It's organized around seven miracles. It's organized around seven I am statements. Everything there is full of symbolism. John was a priest, so obviously he would have known Torah, and he would have known the prophets, and so his book is just packed with symbolism. So the wedding at Cana is the first of the miracles. Why is it important? Why that miracle? And you remember in the reading, his mother is there, and his mother says, we're out of wine, go do something. Well, he's a guest at the wedding. I mean, what are you going to do, go out for a six-pack? There were some really odd questions. That's one of them. He's a wedding guest, and so we're out of wine. Why is that my problem, Mom? And he says, go do something. And, of course, he does. The sequence is interesting. He just has come from being baptized. Then we have this wedding. And the next thing that happens in the book is he goes and he cleanses the temple. That's kind of fascinating where this fits in the sequence. Not quite sure what to do with that, but I throw it out to you so that you can ponder on it. Like I've been pondering on it for a while. You can ponder for a while too. One of the things that happens at the end of the reading is it specifically says in verse 11, John 2:11. This is the first of his signs. Yeshua did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glories, and his disciples believed in him. So there's something going on there. If they didn't believe in him, why were they tagging along? And then finally, what's all this mean to us? Certainly it's nice to have these stories which authenticate, if you will, the Messiah good for your faith and so forth, but what practically can you take from this? So I'm going to try and answer some of those questions. And I'll tell you quite frankly, I'm not going to answer them all. So last night, as I was pondering all this, I've been pondering it for several days, finally turned to that most reliable of all sources, the Internet. I started doing some searches on what's going on, and I ran into all sorts of stuff. One of the very common themes I found, especially from Christian commentators, is, well, these stone jars were for the purification rites of the Jews, and all that's done away with in the New Covenant. And so what he was doing was he was demonstrating that the New Covenant did away with the Old, and that his activity replaced that and was way stronger than the Jewish stuff. Very, very common thread wrong, but very, very common. I finally ran across a guy, he's a Catholic, interestingly enough, named Mark Shea, and he writes for the National Catholic Register. And he pointed me in a direction that was very useful. He pointed me to Isaiah. And once I saw Isaiah and read Isaiah 24 and 25, all sorts of lights went on. I started to understand why this miracle and why that miracle was the first miracle, and I started to understand what about that miracle made his disciples believe. So let's go to Isaiah 24, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, 
the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. Huh, we have a wine theme here, and it's going to get worse. Verse 8. The mirth of the tambourine is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. Noticing a theme here? All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, and as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. So you have two themes here. One is a lack of joy. The other one, of course, is an absence of wine. And notice that the two are connected. What we have here is a wedding. A wedding is a joyous occasion. And what we also have here is, oops, the wine has run out. So Mary knows who Yeshua is. She got told by the Holy Spirit early on who he is. She knows he's the Messiah. She knows that the Messiah is the one who is going to come and correct all that stuff in Isaiah. So here we are at a wedding, joyous occasion. Whoops, we're out of wine. You're the Messiah, so get on with it already. And she sends him off to figure it out. She doesn't know what he's going to do necessarily, but she knows that he's the Son of God, and she knows that he's the Messiah, and she knows that his time has come, and she knows that it's time to get started, so go fix it. That's her part of the conversation. And by the way, one of the things this Catholic guy said, which was interesting, Catholics, of course, venerate Mary. And he was saying that the conversation between Yeshua and Mary in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Yeshua said to him, they have no wine. Yeshua said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That is not a starchy conversation. The way it's translated into English, it sounds kind of starchy. Jewish mother says, no wine, you're the Messiah, fix it. Woman, what does that have to do with me? If you said something like that in English, it would be snappish. It is not in Aramaic or Greek. It is a perfectly polite conversation. In fact, this Catholic guy says the two of them were actually probably playing with each other. You know, that's the Catholic interpretation. I think he's right, quite frankly. So the other part of that is this wedding is a big deal. I brought in a visual aid here. You've all seen these, right? If you haven't had your work on your house, you've seen them lying by the road. That's five gallons. 
Five gallons is 20 bottles of wine. If you were to go to the store, buy wine and pour it all in there, you'd get 20 bottles of wine in there. Each one of these jars is between 20 and 30 gallons. Let's take the middle place, 25. So each one of these jars is five of these buckets. There are six of these jars. That's 600 bottles of wine. You understand completely. Yeah, that's a party. And by the way, the 600 bottles of wine is after everybody has drunk up all the wine that they were planning to have. I just want to give you some idea of the scale of this. It's a big party. And by the way, it was not uncommon apparently for a wedding feast to go on for a week. So they didn't necessarily all drink all that 600 bottles right there on the spot, but you understand it's, it's a lot of wine. And it is wine on top of what was planned for the wedding, which was thought to have been enough when they set it up. So, a couple of symbols going on here. The third day. This happens on the third day. I had some commentator trying to figure out what that is. The third day is Tuesday. The third day is Tuesday. And the reason that weddings are held on Tuesdays is because back in Genesis 1, on the third day, God said it is good twice. It's called the day of double blessing in Judaism. It is regarded as a day that is auspicious for things like weddings. Some Christian commentator was just getting all wrapped around the axle about trying to figure out what this third day thing was. Tuesday. It's why we do Bible study on Tuesday. However, having said that, the number three is significant. Yeshua was raised on the third day. All sorts of things happen in threes in scripture, and John is very highly symbolic. So you have the combination of Jewish customs, we get married on Tuesday, and also he sees fit to say on the third day. A Jewish reader of this would have probably just assumed that wedding happened on a Tuesday. And the fact that he has to say that, I believe, is significant. Six stone jars. All sorts of symbolism there. First, numbers in Scripture are used consistently. Twelve is the number of human government and responsibility. Four is the number of Messiah. Five is the number of Torah. Those kinds of things. And the numbers are used consistently throughout Tanakh and New Testament all the, all the one. So the idea here of six is the number that has to do with men. Because man was created on the sixth day. And this is not particularly controversial. So we have six jars. And the jars are made out of stone. A couple of things about stone. Stone does not transmit to my uncleanness. You remember from reading the Torah, we're in Numbers 19, and this will be significant too. This is the law of the red cow, where you take it outside the camp and you slaughter it outside the camp, you burn it, somebody collects the ashes, and then the ashes of the red cow are used for purification of those who have come in contact with death. That's their only use. And the way it worked was they'd take this red heifer out, slaughter it, and you'd have a clean man collect the ashes. And in doing so, he became unclean. 
and then you had somebody transport him over and in carrying them he became unclean and had to purify himself not unclean as in touching death but these ashes are weird because what they do is if water that is mixed with them is sprinkled on someone who has had contact with death on the third day and on the seventh day after contact with death he then becomes pure that's the ritual well the other part of that is if somebody dies in a tent or in a house the house itself becomes unclean furthermore if you have any uncovered vessels in the house when this poor fellow dies they become unclean and what has to happen is they get broken another example you got flies and a fly dies in your pot of porridge you don't get to just fish the fly out and keep going no 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 that vessel has now become unclean it has to be broken so that keeps everybody really conscious of keeping their vessels covered but the point is stone does not do that clay does stone doesn't don't ask me why it's a law not claiming to understand it i'm just telling you what it is so numbers 19 which is the business with the red cow this is the law when someone dies in a tent everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days and every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days for the unclean they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering that's the red cow and fresh water shall be added in a vessel then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave and the clean person shall sprinkle it on all the unclean on the third and the seventh days that's what I just told you thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and at evening he shall be clean got a change in pronouns what I believe is happening is the guy that is ministering this becomes himself unclean in the process but it is not uncleanliness involving death so he just takes a regular mikvah and he's okay so the question is what is in those stone jars and it specifically says it's used for the Jewish rites of purification now the way the heifer was handled and they only killed in all of Israel's history either seven or nine of them depending on who's counting so it's very rare and what they would do is they would divide the ashes into three parts one part would be in the temple or the tabernacle and that's for use of the priests one part I don't remember where that goes but the third part was divided among the priests who live in the land so you're a priest living somewhere up in the folly or you're living over in Gad or someplace like that part of your job is to have some of those ashes on hand because if Shlomo dies up in Naphtali somebody's got to take care of the body all the people who took care of the body plus Shlomo's house is now unclean 
So it's the job of a priest then to take some of this ash that is deposited around, mix it up with water, and go do the sprinkling. I think the jars that we're talking about are the jars of water, each of which has a little bit of ash in it. There are other people who think that it is water for a mikvah. I don't. And the reason for that is a mikvah requires living water. And a stone jar, you may have put living water in it, but once it sat there for a while, it no longer is. This is not thus saith the Lord, this is just my opinion. But the point is, it is used for purification, and it is not water that would be used for food, consumption, cooking, drinking, anything else. It would not be used for that. In fact, as I say, if it's water with the red heifer ashes in it, it would be avoided because contact with the ash makes you unclean. And at a wedding, what the bride and groom would have done before the wedding would be to take a mikvah. They would have been ceremonially clean as they went into their marriage. So for somebody to come along and throw water of a heifer into a wedding party, I will be gross for a minute. It would be like if you went to the toilet and dipped some water out. I mean, the toilet may have just been flushed and it looks nice and clean, but Jesus never would do something like that. You just wouldn't do it. It's the same thing with this water in the jars. You just wouldn't do that. But he did. So, what's going on? Well, let me backtrack a minute to Sinai. And you all remember, you've all heard this riff before. I'll go over it very quickly for those out in streaming land. When Israel stood at the foot of Sinai and God started to speak... God got through two commandments, and the people of Israel said, Stop! If we hear any more, the voice of the Lord will die. Moses, you go up and talk to him. Come back, tell us what he's got to say, and we'll listen to you. But we can't hear the voice of God anymore. That is when tablets of stone became a thing. The thing at Sinai was intended to be the consummation of a wedding between God and Israel. And, of course, at the consummation of a wedding, the groom gives information to the bride with the intention of passing on life, to be delicate about it. That was what was supposed to be happening. God was supposed to be speaking into the hearts of his people with the idea that his words would pass on life. And, in fact, that's what the new covenant is. The new covenant, which is an Old Testament thing, is God will speak his word into your heart and he will remove your heart of stone. So when Israel said stop, that's when the tablets of stone became operational, which is to say this is a metaphor for hearts of stone. You're going to schlep these rocks around until you get the idea because you've got hearts of stone. We have stone jugs. How many? Six. So what I'm going to suggest to you is the symbol there is men with hearts of stone that he is going to then fill with wine of joy. Understand the symbolism. And you can do whatever you like with the red cow, believe it or not. Some people do, some people don't. I think it makes sense. So the idea here of the miracle is what he is doing 
is he is in a place of joy, which is a wedding. We have run out of wine, which remember in the Isaiah passage I just read you, was a symbol of joy and celebration. We have six stone jars representing humanity with hearts of stone. The point of the Messiah is he is going to come and his blood is going to be the sacrifice for the new covenant. That's his job. So when he sheds his blood, he is going to be the sacrificial victim, the sacrificial victim who inaugurates the new covenant. That's the deal with the Messiah. That's what he's supposed to do. So here he is. He is converting water to wine. He is doing the Messiah thing. And he is backing out this idea of hearts of stone. Because again, as you all know in the New Covenants, you can read it in Jeremiah, you can read it in Ezekiel, you can read it in Deuteronomy, you can read it in Isaiah. Take your pick. Different metaphor in each one of those. Moses says circumcision of the heart. Ezekiel says remove your heart of stone. Jeremiah says I will write my covenant on your heart. It's all the same thing. The Messiah when he comes gets the Torah into your heart where it was intended to be all along. As opposed to on tablets of stone which was plan B. So the idea then of humanity with hearts of stone and the Messiah filling those hearts of stone with the wine of gladness at a wedding is why that miracle is the first one there. So, a couple of things now. Let's go to Isaiah. And we just read from Isaiah 24 where everything is desolate. Let's move down to 25. Isaiah 25. And I'll pick it up on verse 6. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Notice the presence of wine in that. Remember, wine was gone and there was no joy. Part of the restoration here is a feast with well-aged wine. You've saved the best wine for last. Isn't that what the major domo of the feast says? Wow. Most people wait till everybody's kind of blitzed and then serve the cheap stuff. You did it in reverse. That's because what he's doing is he is fulfilling the prophecy here in Isaiah 25. That's the reason for that miracle. That's the reason why it's the first That's the reason why it's there. That's the reason why it takes place at a wedding. That's the reason why it involves wine. That and the reason why we've got stone jars. All of this is highly symbolic. Remember we started off by saying at the end of this, and his disciples believed in him. 
Well, if they didn't believe in him, why were they there? And I will suggest three things. And if I were a Baptist, I would make a whole sermon on this one. Everything alliterates. It's great. Channeling my inner Baptist here. He had a compelling personality. He was a welcome guest at a wedding. People liked him. He liked people. He had a commanding presence. You know, we walked by people and said, come, follow me. And people just dropped stuff and followed him. They left their nets, the fishermen. So he had a commanding presence. And then what we have today is we have a confirming sign. What's happened up until now is his disciples have followed him because they think that he is a teacher, which he is. Just another charismatic rabbi. But now what we have is a confirming sign of the fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah. And now it's, oh, this isn't just another rabbi. This is, in fact, the Mashiach. The last thing I want to do is, what does this all mean to you? Other than, you know, increase my faith that things are all right. There's a line in here. I'll pick it up at eight and a half. Yeshua speaking. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Then the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Remember I said that there is no way at a wedding that somebody would use those jars for preparation of any kind of food or drink. It just wouldn't be done. And so it is not the case that Yeshua waltzed out there with this glass of wine and said, I just turned this water in the stone jars into wine. Everybody would have looked at him and said, you did what? So nobody at the feast knows what's happened. But the servants knew. The servants were in on it. The servants understood what had happened. And that's your homiletic application. You are servants of God. You should understand what's going on. The world may not understand what's happening, but you should. You should be in on the deal, if you will. That's your job as a servant. Take the wine out into the world. A world that is right now sorely lacking in joy. There's not a lot of joy in Mudville right now. So take the wine and take it out into the world and spread the joy of the Messiah. Let us shine.